From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome into Hand Raised Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. I'm Neil McCready. I'll be with you for the first few minutes of the show, then I'll toss it over to Chase Parham, Brian Rippey. They'll get you ready for the NCAA tournament, which begins in 15 of 16 locations today. Unfortunately for Ole Miss, it does not begin for the Rebels today. Uh, games already washed out today. Tropical depression, tropical storm going through South Florida. Games uh, rescheduled for tomorrow. Frankly, I'm a little dubious about tomorrow as well. I guess I need to put on headphones and make sure this is – make sure I can hear myself. I can. Good. Uh, all right. So, again, brought to you by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. Same great products, same great services, just different names. If you live in the Oxford or uh, Tupelo area, get in touch with the people at Comer, 662-801-1777. If you are uh, in the Hernando uh, South Haven, Memphis area. Get in touch with the people at Southern Air Conditioning and Heating, 662-429-4429. I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900. Call that number. Ask for uh, Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. Right to the bottom line, no hassle, no haggle. You get your quote. The rest completely up to you. You can shop that quote or you can do what I've done, what I recommend that you do, and that's hop into a Clark Ford today. You'll love the product. You'll love the service even more than that. Uh, we had an issue this week with um, one of our vehicles. Had to get it fixed pretty quickly. Corey and the people at Clark Ford knocked that out in less than 24 hours. Made it uh, super convenient for us. It's the kind of service that you just don't get everywhere, but you get it from Clark Ford, 662 662- Two five seven nineteen hundred. Brian Rippey will join Chase on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Rafters Music and Food on the Square in Oxford. Also Rafters in New Albany, and um, Rafters on the Beach, Sardis Beach. That is Rafters at uh, at Sardis. That's open this weekend as well. Margaritas, cold beer, burgers, po boys, the whole deal. Great place to uh, enjoy. Wonderful weather here in Oxford. Kind of the antithesis of the weather that they're getting in Coral Gables. But again, uh, the games for today in Coral Gables have been um, pushed back until tomorrow. I think I read Chase on Twitter say that um, 11 o'clock or something like that, and Ole Miss plays 55 minutes after the end of the Miami uh, Kinesis game. My anticipation is this is going to be a Sunday through Tuesday tournament and that they'll just squeeze that third game in the event that they need a game seven, I anticipate they'll play it on Tuesday rather than push it back and have the one game um, at the end. If you remember, and I'm sure you do, Ole Miss, with the, I guess it was 2018 when they lost to um, Tennessee Tech. That was a rain-impacted regional, and so they moved, them, moved the games back to um, – I guess it went Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and they played the two games on uh, on Monday. So, yeah, 
that's what's going to happen, I think. I think you'll see games on a Sunday. But for now, the games are scheduled for Saturday, and uh, Chase will keep you updated. I'll have some recruiting coverage later in the day. Ole Miss has a Friday Night Lights event. Don't really know the details on it. I've had a hard time getting itinerary on that. But I'll head out there sometime mid-afternoon, and we'll be there for a while. Some prospects coming in. I don't know exactly who's kind of the beginning of camp season. The recruiting um, landscape looks completely different than it used to. So uh, they'll have some guys in. They'll have some guys working out for them. Honestly, this is an excuse to get guys on campus so that you can spend some time with them and their families more than the evaluation part of it. The evaluation part's basically, you sort of know at this point whether you you want a a kid or not. So anyway, we'll have coverage of that at rebelgrove.com. Late today, early tomorrow, as some there's some recruiting, some official visitors on campus. A couple of guys left yesterday. I've touched base with both of them, Roman Rashada, Whit Weeks. I anticipate talking to them uh, at some point today. So I'll try to get that content to you at rebelgrove.com as well. Something uh, happened yesterday. We'll pull up the story here because I thought this was really interesting. And it made me kind of think about some things. I'd been, my mind's been on other stuff this week, and I really haven't given a lot of thought to NIL and all this. And this hit me yesterday, and it made me, I was actually out walking, and and Gabe DeArmond called me, and we talked about this, and it led to me sort of thinking about what I was going to talk about here, which is Ryan Day, the Ohio State coach, was speaking yesterday to about 100 members of the Columbus, Ohio business community. It was Thursday morning. And Ryan Day started saying the quiet part out loud to these people. He knew he was on the record. He knew media was there. So he had obviously given some thought to um, to what he was going to say. He said that there's a price tag on what he believes it will take to keep the Ohio State football roster together. That price tag, $13 million. I'm reading from uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Cleveland.com, Doug Lesmarissus, I think is his name. He says, to some schools engaged in NIL payments at the highest level right now, that number might sound small and quaint. To many other schools in the Big Ten, it may sound gigantic and impossible. As usual, it's a number that puts Ohio State in the thick of the latest changes to college sports. As the Buckeyes always say, they seek to straddle the line of keeping up without going too far. That part's kind of laughable, but... He says, it might be tempting to look at $13 million for an 85-man scholarship football team as $150,000 per player. But I think the better calculation is something closer to $500,000 each for the 26 guys you can't live without. So this was a meeting. Um, he was talking to the – he's unveiling the NIL Corporate Ambassador Program at Ohio State. They already have some other – NIL programs in place, a collective, much like Ole Miss and Florida and others have. This was a, um, what they're trying to do is get businesses to get the athletes as endorsers, provide internships, educational opportunities, paid educational opportunities, so that um, they believe that that keeps them sort of within the rules of NIL. Technically, it does. If there's if there's an exchange for current players 
and it's not being used as an inducement, there's no limit. But what I found interesting was later on, he was asked, Ryan Day was, specifically what are guys, what's it costing to get guys? What market do you have to be in to get elite prospects? Ohio State obviously playing at the very highest level. They've been in the playoff multiple years. They've won a national championship in this era. They'll probably open this season ranked number two, number three in the country. It's going to be Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia in some order. Ryan Day, again, the Ohio State coach, says he believes right now top-shelf quarterbacks require $2 million in NIL money. Offensive tackles, edge rushers are about $1 million each. Frankly, I've heard bigger numbers than that. I've heard a lot bigger numbers than that. But we'll go with those numbers for a minute. $2 million for a quarterback. $1 million for a, a rush end, a dominant left tackle, maybe even a dominant right tackle. Again, these are high school guys. That's what they're wanting. He says that these guys come to campus, and when it come, the, the conversation turns to NIL, those are the price tags that they're asking for. And if you can't do it, if you can't, meet those prices, you're out. And so it made me think a little bit. So just bear with me here. We'll get to Chase and Brian and a thorough uh, preview of the NCAA baseball tournament in a minute. But I think this is a bigger story. Because it made me wonder how many schools out there can do $2 million for a quarterback. And then what does that mean when you get a quarterback? Because – I'll be honest here. The numbers I've heard at Ole Miss so far, I've yet to hear a number out of the transfer portal higher than $50,000. Is there somebody making more than fifty? Maybe so. Those are the numbers I've heard. We've all heard about Nico Imaliva and um, the $8 million deal that, that he's got essentially with Tennessee. We've heard a lot of talk about Texas A&M and their $25 million class, Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher going back and forth, all that stuff. But I started just thinking out loud to myself yesterday, talking to Gabe, what does this mean for the fan? And here's what I mean when I say that. I'm not a college sports fan anymore. I've been doing this too long to, to have fandom. I've seen the sausage made. But I'm a pro sports fan, and Lane Kiffin always talks about Uh, college football today is a professional sport. And he's right. Don't get me wrong. Lane has emerged as the voice of, of, uh, frankly, the voice of the new era of college football. He has given some of the best interviews. He's given some of the most thoughtful answers, some of the most honest answers. I'll give Ryan Day credit here for being honest and joining the Lane Kiffin School of Transparency. But in pro sports... There's a different dynamic than there is in college sports. And I'm not talking about the amateurism and all of that stuff. I'm talking about hope. I'll give you an example. I cheer for the Oklahoma City Thunder. My brother used to live in Oklahoma City, moved there when the Thunder just got started. They had just drafted uh, Russell Westbrook. Kevin Durant had played one season in Seattle. Uh, Russell Westbrook was drafted as a, a supersonic, but his first season was with the Thunder. They drafted James Harden. They had this young team, and uh, we would go up there and watch games, and it was a lot of fun, and it was fun to follow that team. Made the um, 
NBA Finals in 2012, reached the um, conference finals multiple times with that group in a small market. And since then, of course, Kevin Durant left for Golden State. Uh, they signed Paul George, had a, re, a, a second iteration of that that was not nearly as successful, and then they broke that team up. And so the last two seasons, the Thunder have been awful. Yet, as a fan, all hope isn't lost because the NBA obviously has a system that includes a salary cap, it has free agency, it has contracts, it has a amateur draft. And so this season, for example, the Thunder were the fourth worst team in the NBA. Yet, they were kind of compelling to follow. And here's why. They had a young player in Shea Gilgis-Alexander who had agreed to a second contract. He starts a max deal uh, in Oklahoma City this season coming up. They had drafted Josh Giddy from Australia with the sixth pick. Turns out to probably be the fourth best player in the draft. So they had, they had uh, accumulated an asset there. The Paul George trade with the Clippers had allowed the Thunder to accumulate a lot of draft assets. Uh, the Russell Westbrook-Chris Paul trade from a couple years ago, more assets. They traded Al Horford to uh, Boston, more assets, on and on. So they go into the draft lottery this year, and they sort of strike gold. They get the second pick in the draft in 20 days. So the Thunder, realistically, are going to walk out of the NBA draft in 20 days with either Jabari Smith or with Chet Holmgren or with uh, Jaden Ivey, the guard from Purdue, probably one of the first two guys. I would guess it'll be Holmgren because I think Orlando will take Jabari Smith. But that's immaterial. The point is, they'll accumulate that asset. They still have all these other picks. They have the 12th pick in the draft. They have the 30th pick in the draft. They have five first-round picks next season. At some point, if they evaluate correctly, if you're a Thunder fan, there's every reason in the world to believe that they're going to be competitive at the highest level again. The system is set up for that. They have a lot of bad contracts right now. They've taken from other teams to allow themselves to accumulate more assets. Those contracts go off the books. At some point, they could dive into the free agency market. They'll have the space allowed to keep some of the young guys they're playing, et cetera, kind of like what Memphis is doing with the Grizzlies. So there's reason for hope. At the college level, I don't know how many teams really have hope. Because there's no draft system. You don't if you finish last, Vanderbilt doesn't get the first pick in the draft. The teams that win have all the money. And the teams that win, therefore, because they have all the money, get to draft, if you will, the best players every year. So back to my Thunder analogy, if the Thunder, because there's no salary cap and they're in a small market, can never realistically expect to be able to pay what the Lakers could pay or the Warriors could pay or um, the Knicks or the Nets. And they never got the first pick in the draft. You never got young players. Would it be as compelling to follow? And the answer is no. Not at all. And so while Ohio State can probably put $13 million together easily, and pay their players, 
and Ohio State can keep recruiting at a really high level, and Ohio State can compete at that, think about some of the teams in the Big Ten that can't. And those teams, they're never going to be able to compete. at the. There's no salary cap, so they can't pay what Ohio State can pay. And Ohio State will continue to get the first pick in the draft, if you will, every year. Actually, the first through the 20th picks in the draft. So you're picking at the bottom of the draft, and I'm using this for an analogy purposes. So if you're a Purdue fan, and you know that there's simply no way that your team's ever going to compete, how many of those fans continue to go? How many of those fans continue to engage? The hardcore fan, the guy that loves Purdue more than anything, yeah, sure, he'll go because it has a a different sentimental value. But your more casual fan, I don't know. I kind of wonder whether he or she says this isn't fun anymore. There's no hope. Because now we're saying the quiet part out loud about what's happening. And I talked to someone who had talked to a college coach and asked yesterday, it wasn't me, but it was somebody, it was an SEC coach, was asked, isn't this the way it's always been? Cole just said that literally in the chat. Hasn't it always been this way? And the coach said, no. It's never been this way. It's never been these kinds of dollar figures. Think about if the numbers are true on Cam Newton, quarter million dollars. What would Cam Newton get in today's market? Look, Mississippi State almost got Cam Newton. I mean, they basically had him. It was basically done. Dan Mullen had come over from Florida. He had targeted very quickly. It was year one of his tenure in Starkville, and he basically had Cam Newton. I've told this story. I was at that Egg Bowl in uh, 2009. And Cam Newton is standing on the field wearing maroon, ringing a cowbell. Because I remember being on the field before the game, and I said to Chris Vaughn, one of the Ole Miss assistant coaches, probably the only one on that staff who would speak to me at the time, I said, who's that? And he said, it's Cam Newton. He's he's probably going to come here. It's a problem. Well, Cam Newton ended up going to Auburn. We've all heard the numbers. What would Cam Newton get? Today, how many teams could play in that market? If Nico Iamaliva is getting $8 million and Arch Manning is getting $10 million and other quarterbacks on the, in the market today are asking for $6 million, that's where a Cam Newton would go. And there aren't that many programs that can raise that kind of money. So it has changed. It is different. The money's different. Um, I think what's interesting, and I think, I think I have it in this story. One of the things that gets said, I'm trying to find it in this column. He said the bar is set at $13 million. That would include money offered to players by the outside collectives that have already formed to pay Ohio State players, and it would include the brand-new ambassador program. Um, but I'm looking for – there was a comment in there about at some point, okay, here it is. Day said that he believes the NIL and the transfer portal will sort itself out in the next two to three years. Didn't offer specifics, 
but said maybe that leads to a structure of the largest and the richest athletic departments breaking off to make and follow and set new rules. In the meantime, he compared the situation to a speed limit. The speed limit thing, we've done this forever. The speed limit's 45 miles per hour, and you drive 45 miles per hour, a lot of people are going to pass you by. If you go too fast, you're going to get pulled over. I don't know about that. We've been doing this for a while. I think the NCAA is is toothless at this point. I don't think it can do anything to anybody. I don't think it's going to do anything to anybody. So it's going to be a matter of can you raise the money to compete at that level? How many schools in the Big Ten are willing to put fifteen, sixteen, seventeen million dollars a year a year to pay and compete at the highest level in in college football? How many teams in the SEC can raise that kind of money? I think it's inevitable that the two leagues break away. Maybe some of the other big boys come with them. They're going to have to form their own rules. It was one of the big topics of conversation, I understand, in the in the uh, SEC coaches' meetings in uh, Destin over the weekend, over the week, I should say, about, hey, look, we've got to get together and come up with some degree of uniformity here or else this is going to be a disaster. There's an understanding that, you want fans to come to games. You want fans involved. And if there is no hope, they're just not going to do it. It's one of the reasons they're going to a nine-game schedule. It's one of the reasons they're going to keep that Power 5 opponent. They're trying to make sure that they incentivize um, fans to come to games. To answer the question, I'm live right now. The conversation that you'll read and that you'll watch with Chase and and uh, Brian, they recorded it last night. So I'm live right now at nine fifteen in the morning. Again, if you're just joining, Ole Miss and uh, Arizona, Miami and Canisius pushed back till tomorrow at at a minimum. But as for right now, no game scheduled today in Coral Gables. Both games get started tomorrow. Um. They, there's there's just a concern, and I think that concern is valid. Not where I think it's going is some form of of revenue sharing. You saw Ole Miss earlier um, this week announced that hey, they're putting the some of the stadium renovations on hold, putting some of the capital uh, on on hold. A lot of that money, you're going to the same people. You're saying, hey, we want NIL. We need help with stadiums. People are saying, I, I'll pay for NIL, but right now I don't I don't want to give to stadiums. Uh, cost of construction's up. Cost of materials is up. So there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. At some point, I think what you're going to see is revenue sharing. You're going to see the schools pull out from the NCAA. They're going to form their own organization. The question is, do you do that across the board in all sports? Can you afford to do that in men's golf? In women's tennis, swimming, rifle, equestrian, gymnastics, what happens with those sports? Do you just stay in the NCAA in those sports and yet pull away? And they tried that already. So that's where Jimbo Fisher said they he was the chairman of the SEC coaches this week. And he said, hey, everyone agrees that we want to play under the same set of rules. Nobody has any idea how you do that. So maybe Ryan Day's right. Maybe it's two or three years. This all sorts itself out. The market sorts itself out. 
Because, look, you bring in a $2 million quarterback, you expect that quarterback to play. How many freshman quarterbacks, I've been covering the league for 20-some-odd years, how many freshman quarterbacks, true freshman quarterbacks, have walked in, gotten on campus, taken the football, ready to play? Not many. I mean, not many. Peyton Manning played as a true freshman, but only by necessity. That wasn't the plan. Eli Manning didn't start at Ole Miss until he was a redshirt sophomore. Matthew Stafford, maybe, at, at Georgia. I can't remember. Did he play right away? How many young quarterbacks are ready to play? So when you bring in a young quarterback with a multi-million dollar deal, the expectation is going to be for him to play. What if he's not ready? What happens in the locker room when the older guy who's not making that money is winning the job? There's all sorts of problems. And so maybe Ryan Day's right. Maybe it all sorts its way out. But I wonder about fans. I wonder about fans at schools like Mississippi State that if you're being realistic, and maybe they can live in a fantasy world, but if you're being realistic and you look at the current market, you realize you can't ever win. You're never going to win. You're never going to play at the highest level. And never's a big word, but if Texas A&M can pay $25 million for a team and you can pay about three it stands to reason you're never going to win. And you're never going to get the first pick in the draft either. Chet Holmgren or Jabari Smith's not coming to save you. I'm using them as analogies. But if you're the Thunder, for example, there's reason for hope. They're going to walk out of the draft with either Jabari Smith or Chet Holmgren, two guys with tremendous upsides. They're going to go into next year's draft, likely with another lottery pick. You get another lottery guy, you put those guys together, and boom, you're playing at a higher level. All of a sudden, you're competitive. The salary caps are there. The Lakers can't go spend $400 million while you spend 150 The rules prevent that. Yet at the college level, how do you put in a salary cap? How do you do that? How does that work? There is no way to distribute the players the way there is in professional sports. It's the problem with... When Kiffin says college football has become pro sports, it has, but it hasn't. There is no there is no salary cap. There's no way to spread the talent around. The teams that win the championships have continue to have the the bigger caps they, because they have no cap, and they continue to get the best players, and they accumulate them. So the rich get even richer, and frankly – there kind of becomes no middle class. There's just a bunch of teams that can't compete. And when that happens, I kind of wonder what happens with fans. So those are my thoughts there. Before we, anybody wants to jump in the thread with something, I'll talk about it for a minute or two before we go to uh, Chase and Brian. Brian says revenue sharing doesn't work because the athletes pick the organization when entering the workforce. That's exactly right. It's the opposite of the pros. That's, that's my point. And so people talk about capping what players can get. I don't know that that holds up in court. If I'm a player and let's say they put a cap of $10 million per team and an organization wants to give me 15 million, I don't, I don't see how that's upheld. How can you 
legally justify limiting a player's earning potential? JM says, Neil, I, I think the locker room isn't the issue that media fans assume it will be. It's not an issue at the pro level where players earn way more than others. Yeah, but at the pro level, it's kind of understood. If you're a first, if you're the first pick in the draft, you're going to make more than the guy that's a fourth round pick. Everybody understands that your performance is about getting to the next contract. At the college level with the transfer stuff, and now there's talk about unlimited transfers. I just think they're seeding a uh, a recipe for chaos. And again, I'm just kind of focused on a fan. If I'm a fan and I'm being asked to spend my money coming up to games and taking my family and that's my expendable income, I don't know. For a lot of fans, it doesn't matter. It's the experience, right? There's, there's, there's Ole Miss fans who come to games and, yeah, they want the Rebels to win, but if the Rebels don't win, it, it, it's okay because the, the fun is in getting together and seeing their family and friends and doing the tailgate and all of that stuff, and they love Ole Miss, and it doesn't matter whether they win or not. There's a lot of that. But there are fans who it's about winning. Look in November at the stadiums where the schools are winning and look in November at the stadiums where the schools have already bit the bullet for that year and tell me it's not about winning. There's nobody at Missouri games. I'll give an example. Uh, two years ago, uh, when my oldest was a freshman at Arkansas, there was a game in November, and they were horrible. That team was, what, 2-10? and 10? Maybe worse than that. There was maybe 20,000 people in that stadium. Well, this past season, Arkansas went 9-3, and three, or 8-4 and four in the regular season. I guess 8-4, and four, and then they won their bowl game. 8-4 and four in the regular season, we were up there for a – um, parents weekend or whatever with their sorority and we went to the Mississippi State game in November and the stadium was full. It's a big difference. Everybody everybody likes winning. Nobody likes losing. But Devon Hemingway in November a few years ago, I guess Matt Luke's last or the interim year, Texas A&M was in town. This is a great example actually because it's the same school. Texas A&M was in town. There was 28,000 people in Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, maybe. This November, Texas A&M comes to town. Ole Miss is winning on their way to a Sugar Bowl. That place was packed. Campus was wild. The town was packed. It's about winning. And if you can't win and you know your team can't win, how much investment do you make? That's the question. It's got to be something that's getting brought up in these meeting rooms, in these boardrooms in Destin, and when they – get back together and um, when coaches talk to the commissioner in, in Hoover, when athletics directors get together, I guess they're wrapping up today in Destin. This needs to be a topic of conversation, and I don't know that it's thought about as much. And Ginger makes a great point in the thread. Pro players are adults. You walk into a – I've done it. You walk into a Major League Baseball clubhouse, it's professional. Those guys are pros. They know the deal. The guy that, yeah, Mike Trout makes more than the, the middle reliever with the Angels. But that middle reliever for the Angels knows that if he gets it done professionally, 
he'll keep his job. And if he gets to a second contract, that contract's going to have more money. And if he gets to a third contract, that contract's going to have more money. It's a different deal. I, I do question what happens in, in locker rooms. I've already heard Kiffin reference it. Because at Ole Miss, the guys that are getting them NIL money right now are the transfer portal guys. I mean, he's right when he says at the end of every season, if you have a good year, even if you intend to stay, if you have a if you have the the transfer available to you, you should jump in the portal. Let schools call you and make offers. They're doing it anyway, but this way they can really do it. You can always come back if you're productive. They'll take you back. I mean, that's what I've I've talked to several coaches in the last few months who think this coming transfer portal cycle, the one that will happen at the end of the 2022 season, is going to be wild. That guys have seen it. The players all know each other. They know each other from camps and stuff like that. They they know that portal guys are getting a lot of money. So maybe you jump in the portal. Knowing you can always come back if you've been productive. If the portal's crazier than it is now, and now there's no limit on how many guys you can bring in. That's the other thing, too, with that I wonder about. I've wondered about this for a while, and maybe you guys can tell me. Part of the fun of being... I'll go back and go to the Thunder for a minute, if you don't mind. Part of what made that team so fun for so long was watching Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant and Serge Ibaka play multiple seasons together. You could see them develop. Role players were there for a long time. Kendrick Perkins was there for several years. Nick Collison, um, Tabo Cephalosha, and then Andre Roberson. And there were guys that were there multiple years. So you got to know a team because of the individuals on it. Before the portal and before this craziness of today's college football, a guy would play at Ole Miss for three, four, five years. You could follow his career. Now, and especially with the unlimited um, numbers now, with all of the roster turnover, do you have, other than them wearing your uniform, them wearing your laundry, do you have the same attachment to guys who come in for one season from another school? The same attachment to guys who transferred in from different places and they're just from all over and it's you're you're basically a professional team now. Do you like that? That's the other thing with the pros, they have contracts. You sign a contract, you're you sign a contract with the Atlanta Braves, for example, for five years. Well, they own your rights. They can trade you, but they own your rights. There's a realistic expectation as a fan that Matt Olson, for example, will be in Atlanta for seven, eight years. At the college level, if you know everyone's leaving after one year, I don't know. It's interesting. So far, the answers are yeah. Uh, BWL says yes. Watching kids develop means a lot more than one-offs. Plus, uh, yeah, okay, he's he's agreeing with me a little bit. He says I always liked knowing someone chose Ole Miss for some somewhat similar reasons as I did, and maybe enjoyed my university for years like me. It's not going to be as much of that. So if you can produce, 
there's an incentive to jump in the portal and see if someone will pay you more. And if you can't produce now, there's going to be less time for development because the schools are going to process you because they can go in and replace your, your, your scholarship with someone out of the portal. Kind of wonder if it's healthy. Appreciate you uh, listening to me on, on all of that because I've kind of wondered about it. I'm not sure I articulated it very well. But it's the kind of thing that I wonder about as we move into this new world of college athletics because I, I do think it's much different. We'll get to um, Chase and Brian in just a minute. I'm going to run through a handful of these uh, the, the people that make these shows possible that support us. I'm going to keep these really short today. Brought to you by uh, Holcomb. See, I said it right. Holcomb Portable Buildings in Holcomb, Mississippi. It's HolcombBuildings.com. You can also find them on Facebook or Instagram at Holcomb Portable Buildings. That's spelled Holcomb, but it's pronounced Holcomb, I'm told. H-O-L-C-O-M-B. We're brought to you by Corinth Dental. Uh, CorinthDental.com. 12 months, no interest, no down payment financing available for uh, programs such as Invisalign. So check them out at CorinthDental.com. Brought to you by Bell & Grove. It's a uh, logistics provider based out of Chattanooga. They specialize in domestic freight movement throughout the continental U.S. For information about them, call 865-672-6557. Southern Traditions Farm has camp season going on. Uh, they're wrapping up week number one of camp season. Still plenty of time to get your um, son or daughter into the camps there at Southern Traditions Farm. They're based in Canton, Mississippi. Check them out on Facebook or Instagram at Southern Traditions Farm. We're also brought to you by Dead Soxy. Right now, Dead Soxy is really encouraging people to check out their custom corporate socks. Go to deadsoxy.com backslash custom. Mention that you heard about uh, that on Rebel Grove or MPW Digital. Get $100 off all your orders. Game Changer Patches. If you're out uh, this weekend enjoying the sun, enjoying the water, maybe imbibing a little bit, give Game Changer a... a, a shot because they are truly a game changer uh patches to uh before you drink overtime patch after you've been drinking promo code rebelgrove20 at gamechangerpatch.com automation and control systems llc based out of baldwin mississippi acs llc ms.com or call 662-601-4381 lamins fine jewelry 1126 north lamar boulevard in oxford they've got everything you're looking for in jewelry lamins fine jewelry.com 662-234-2777 college corners your one-stop rebel shop two locations in the jackson area in ridgeland it's next to fleet feet and flowwood it's next to half shell college cornerstore.com as well Uh, martin palomo and i put up a mind on my money it's brought to you by pinnacle Uh, make sure if you're looking at investing retirement that kind of thing get in touch with the people at pinnacle they'll take great care of you it's mypinwealth.com m-y-p-i-n-n wealth.com john edwards of regency travel incorporated is the guy to get in touch with if you're looking to plan a trip that creates a lifetime of unique memories it's 901-494-3387 or j edwards at regencytravel.net brought to you by opa if you're coming to town anytime soon check out opa right there on the historic square Euros, wraps, kebabs, so much more. 306 South Lamar in Oxford. And we're brought to you by Grenada Nissan. If you're in the market for a Nissan vehicle, check out Grenada Nissan. It's GrenadaNissanUSA.com. 
I put up a mailbag earlier in the week at rebelgrove.com. It's brought to you by Whitney McNutt of Tommy Morgan Incorporated Realtors. Uh, she can help you with all of your real estate needs in Oxford and Tupelo, 662-567-2573 or 662-842-3844. A service specialist staffing and recruiting agency can help you if you're looking for a job. It can also help you if your company is looking for hard-to-find quality talent. ServiceSpecialistLTD.com or 662-832-5138. And we're brought to you by The Rogue. The Rogue is your destination for fine men's clothing, 4450 I-55 North in Jackson or therogue.com. All right, so um, at this point, I'll switch it over to Chase Parr and Brian Rippey. They did a uh, a lot of um, preview of not only the Ole Miss Baseball Regional in Coral Gables, which again will get started later this weekend, but of the other 15 regionals starting today all over the country. So here's Brian and uh, Chase on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Brian Rippey now joining, I guess, sort of on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline here on this edition of uh, Hand Raised Guys. Brian, you've uh, been on the road a little bit today, but you uh, you checked it before you left. I was just looking a second ago as well. We, uh, we're going to talk some Coral Gables Regional as Ole Miss is at least supposed to open on uh, Friday. That looks a little doubtful because of the tropical depression that's bearing down on South Beach. But I was laughing a little bit with you a second ago. Miami refusing to name a starter. Um, Arizona and Ole Miss are behaving. They're doing what you want people to do. Go ahead and tell everybody who's pitching. But Canisius, of all people, struggling to name a starter. And then Miami. But you did mention that uh, that Miami has a little history and they, they, they might be – at least a little bit justified in their paranoia. Yeah, so their coach's first year was 2012 as an assistant. Or I say first year. He had a long stint. Looks like he got out of coaching for four years back in 2012. Well, that was the Stony Brook year. Um, that was actually the one of the first questions he got at his presser today when I watched it, so I'm sure he was thrilled with that. Um, but, yeah, so they're doing the whole we're not announcing until Canisius does – he mentioned it was between a lefty and a righty for Canisius. I would be of the thought that Canisius may not actually know what they're going to do yet. Whereas the Miami guy absolutely probably knows what he's doing regardless. And is just kind of playing hardball for no reason against a four seed. That's never won a tournament game, but Hey, I guess you can't be too careful. So we're going to go all over the place today. I want to run through the regionals. I want to talk about the, obviously Coral Gables a pretty good bid. Is this be the kind of the last primer heading into that? But let's start out with the really important thing. How are we judging this Buffalo Wild Wing milkshake looking thing that they're uh, they're serving up this weekend at Coral Gables? I'm going to need a bit of a scouting report on this. I saw a photo of this. I saw a bunch. Normally, so shockingly, my favorite, like not what's not my favorite content in the world is when someone throws a bunch of stuff in a cup and then everyone has tapes <laughs> on it as far as what it is and whether you can eat it. So it's a Buffalo chicken milkshake. Is that what this is? Yeah, so I'm, I'm 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 pulling it up. I know it's not great content, but for people just so bear I, with me. I'm looking at my phone, and I saw a photo of it too. It looked more like churros in there. That's what I thought it was at first. I didn't understand. No, it is a, it, it is a it is a buffalo wing. Are we? Oh, so this I thought. Okay, I was about to ask. Are we talking like Tyson's? What what is this frozen? Well, I'm you like, know it. Well, okay. The, the the background here is that you know Mark Lightfield at Miami. Like their thing is milkshakes. It's always been. They have their regular mint concession has forty flavors of milkshakes. Every game. That's like they're like weird. Yeah, 40. That's I would have been stunned at four. No, no, no. It, it is the weird Miami thing. They've done it for years. I mean, seriously, like 40 years or something. They've done milkshakes at every home baseball game. So, like, when Ole Miss, when they host regionals, do the hot dogs, Miami yeah, is doing school. milkshakes. 
Yeah, but Miami is doing flavored milkshakes for every team. Ole Miss is just the regional, right? They just do it for the teams in the regional. My, it sounds like this is a year, a season-long operation for Miami. No, no, no. Miami has 40 flavors that they just have at their ballpark every single game, the same 40 flavors. But they are doing specialty milkshakes for the regional. Did and Ole Miss one of rip off Miami kind of like they did with Love is Gone, but they did it with hot dogs <laughs> and fewer flavors? Yeah, now that I don't know. That's a good question. So here's what we got. We've got the one that you were just talking about. And it is Canisius, because they're from Buffalo, New York. It is Canisius's specialty milkshake that everybody is discussing. And it is a uh, it's a vanilla milkshake with ranch, hot sauce, and buffalo wings inside it. That's probably a no for me. But if it's like, – I always – my thing with the, those type of stuff are it's like, yes, this sounds gross. But if they're going to sell it, it probably actually tastes better than you think and is edible – and so it always ends up being better, but um, I'm if I was frequenting the ballpark, I wouldn't scan the menu and like that's the one hand me that. Um, but I would try it if presented to me. I think what is the one for Ole Miss? Is that just baby? see? That's the catch in this. This is where I think the problem with the Buffalo one is that you have to be completely into the gimmick because the other two actually sound edible and good. So if I'm choosing between forty regular flavors and these three specialties, and I've got to pick a specialty. Arizona, they're doing a vanilla milkshake with pear and margarita flavoring. Okay. I mean, okay. like, whatever. It's fine. I, I'm there. all in. And then with Ole Miss, they're doing vanilla with cinnamon and bourbon. So Ole Miss gets the alcoholic one. Uh, I'm sure it's bourbon flavoring. I'm sure it's not actually alcohol, but nonetheless, it is it is a it is a cinnamon bourbon flavored vanilla milkshake. Okay. That one sounds like the best one, honestly. I think because ranch flavoring in my milkshake is making me want to like throw up a little bit in my mouth right now. That actually does. People like to use that term often, but you think about the like contrast of ranch and ice cream that actually does make me kind of nauseous to think about. So that's probably like, does the Buffalo counteract that? I I doubt it. How do you, okay. Buffalo chicken wing shake. How's that going through a straw? Because it had, yeah, you have, it's, it's, it's almost like a Bloody Mary. They've got the chicken wings stuffed down in it. So I guess you would eat those, pull those out, set the bones aside, and then eat the vanilla, the hot sauce, and the ranch that is the, that is the milkshake. I'm probably out there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a gimmick. You could also just order, you know, chocolate, strawberry, vanilla, coffee, banana, the normal flavors that people do with milkshakes. What are they charging for these? These have to be overpriced. Uh, the rate, well, their normal concession stand, the like traditional flavors, meaning the chocolate, strawberry, vanilla stuff, those are $9 and the other ones are $10. It's been a while. I haven't been in the milkshake market in quite a while. I actually don't even know the last time I've had one. That seems steep though. It's steep, but for ballpark stuff, it's kind of whatever. I don't think it's completely unreasonable. Yeah. Okay. You got to remember, like most of these ballparks are charging 12 bucks for a burger. Yeah, kind of like at the PGA last week. It was like an $18 tall boy. It's like, here's a Stella. Like, good Lord. Um, so the entire yeah. PGA is not following the master's plan. It, they, they, they'll, they're trying to, to gouge it. Yeah, so, you know, this is – I feel like that's right in the middle. It's not that affordable price thing, but it's not, you know, here's a $21 milkshake with a chicken wing stuck in it. I would, I would feel like I got ripped off there. Yeah. 
So on the field, uh, Miami and Canisius, uh, they will now play at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Or Sorry, they're scheduled for 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Arizona and Ole Miss, 50 minutes following, 50, 55 minutes following that game. Worst case scenario for the Wildcats and the Rebels is for Miami to get its game in and then the monsoon. That's the that that that's the, the the DEFCON thing that must be avoided, right? Yes, I would agree with that as well. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm just looking at the forecast. I made it pretty clear on the midweek show that we did that I am not a weather guy. I don't know about you. I've gotten tons of weather questions this week. I don't really understand them. I guess I understand them from the aspect of someone's asking, like, well, what's the rule if they do this? But I've gotten plenty of messages just like, what's the rain look like? Are they going to play? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, I, if you broke your arm, would you ask a local podcaster <laughs> whether you need a splint or a, a cast? Like, wait, I don't know. Ask a meteorologist or look at the weather. Or something. How would I know that? I'm just some random dude in front of a microphone. That one's been crazy. But I can predict it now that we're like, what, 12 hours out as we record this. Uh-huh. It doesn't look great. Um, it doesn't really look great until Sunday. But – Again, uh, this is probably my first time actually monitoring a tropical storm with any sort of personal interest in it. I don't know. Can the storm go the other way? Can you get a pocket in? Because most of the time, I mean, how many times have Oxford regionals um, like that one the, when Ole Miss went to Omaha in 14, that had a lot of washout, right? Friday was completely washed out. It was. If I remember correctly, it didn't look great Saturday, but they got a pocket and they got it in. I remember 16. It looked terrible, and then it drizzled for that Ole Miss-Utah game for like three innings, ended up being fine. Is that the same thing? I don't know, but I would say it does not look good. What are your thoughts on this forecast? No, the Friday washout was Tennessee Tech because it's what compressed it all together that caused the problem, right? Maybe that's what it was. Did yeah. they have one in 14, too? Because in, 14, they had the, in 14, they had a rain delay where it never actually rained. Yes, but didn't they didn't they completely scrap the games? The only reason I remember that yeah, is that's right. I was a student, and I had to go home. I was actually working a manual labor job, and I was kind of mad I couldn't see them finish it out on Monday mm-hmm. uh, or on Sunday because I had to go home that Monday. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably, so a little bit of both there, but um, a tropical storm seems a little more intense in terms of rainfall. It, it's it's no less than – I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, I got the same questions where everybody goes, hey, what day do you think we're going to play? And it's like, I don't know. I can read a forecast just like like you can. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, past that, I have no extra ability. Um, and, and it's not like the teams know. I mean, my, my expertise does not move into meteorology in, 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 any, in any facet. But it's 70 – yeah, right. It's 70, 75 percent all day goes up to 90, 95% later than that. I mean, the odds are not very good. I mean, by the time people hear this, obviously, it will either be we'll, – we'll, they'll be playing or not playing. But point being, Ole Miss needs to stay on the same schedule as Miami. Arizona needs to stay on the same schedule as Miami. I mean, there there is a there is a huge problem if that first game gets in and then you've got washouts. Because, look, Saturday looks worse than Friday. So you run into Sunday if you're not able to do this Friday-Saturday thing or at least this Friday thing. So that's that, that's Ole Miss's problem. First, just get the games in. And then you um, you do your show with a human computer in Colin. You've, got, you've been looking at it all week for the most part. I've seen on the board they run a bunch of projections in different ways. What odds are you giving Ole Miss to get out of this thing? Man, that's a tough question because, like, in, in terms of Vegas odds, they actually got a pretty good shot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're minus 170, I saw, to win on Friday. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to win the regional, but they like their chances against Arizona. Miami, I can't remember exactly what the odds were, but Miami was not a huge favorite to get out of the regional. As far as if I had to put a percentage on it, 
25%, I probably would have been willing in a normal terms to go up to 40, but we just haven't seen this play, this team play clean baseball for a prolonged stretch um, outside of a two week run against some bad pitching against Missouri and LSU. I thought LSU was probably their best played series of the year beyond the obvious fact of going down there and sweeping in Baton Rouge. I thought they were pretty clean mm-hmm. defensively and had a pretty good approach at the plate. That being said, I think it's in them, right? I think that's why we keep almost insanely holding out hope of like, well, they could do this because the talent's there. I just can't put a decent chance on them making out of this regional, even if I think it's a weak one, because of the self-inflicted stuff. Um, like how, if they won Friday, wouldn't – would you be shocked at all if that game two looked like Florida State against Ole Miss last year in the game two, where Florida State kicked the ball around and literally gave the game away when Ole Miss played like crap and despite a heroic effort from Doug? Like that kind of stuff. There's too much, there's too much prone to that, if that makes any sense for me to pick them. I mean, hell, Arizona's the best team in the regional defensively, technically, but it's because of the low bar they're stepping over. Yeah, all the all the teams are terrible defensively. There, there, there is no good defense. Everybody team. sucks at it. Is that, does that like, is, that, is there anything to that? What do you it's give? Fair. No, it's, you know, the, the winner of the Ole Miss Arizona game, I give a 35% chance of winning the regional, something like that. I think Miami's 50, they're 35 and the loser of the first game, you know, 10, 15%. I mean, if you just got some kind of offensive run and ran through it, nobody has the pitching to go through the loser's bracket, but there's also not a dominant team. Miami's got, a, got, got an arm I like. They've got the closer. The Walter Kidd has been phenomenal, has not really allowed much of anything all year. You know, Arizona has Susack back behind the plate. They've got maybe the best hitter in the regional in him. They've got a couple arms that are okay in Urban and, and Nichols. You know, I, I, I do – I think Ole Miss's problem a little bit, if there's a problem, is this opener from the standpoint of they need DeLucia to chill out early. You know, he, he typically settles in, but sometimes early on he's kind of amped up and things all over the place, and he has to get out of some trouble. So they can't get behind early. I think that's really important whenever this, this game is played. I know it's kind of a duh thing, but it's important for DeLucia because he's such their emotional leader. He's such the guy that sort of gets them going that if he struggles, I think they sort of get on their heels a little bit. And then with Irvin, the starter for Arizona, Ole Miss knocked him around for seven runs on seven hits last year. He only got four outs. Stanford got to him last week in the Pac-12 championship game. They hit four home runs against him in 4.1 innings. But beyond that, he's been damn good this year. You look at his other starts, He's only, he has not allowed more than three runs in any of his starts. He's gone at least six innings in 11 of his 15 appearances this year. So he can workhorse them a little bit. I, I guess my point being is that if he gives Arizona a good start and Arizona wins the game, I do think Nichols can at least play with Miami the next day. I, I think the Wildcats can progress. I think Hunter Elliott could definitely beat Miami the next day if he gets to Hunter Elliott and you hand him the ball and you see what happens. You're right. It feels – it's not a press thing. You know, forever we talked about Mike Bianco and do you press in the postseason and what, what do they play like. I think they're going to be loose. It's just can they consistently play good baseball? And other than that week, five-day stretch, five-game stretch against LSU and Missouri, if you want to count that, they just haven't consistently played good baseball. Like you said, they've kicked it around. They've done self-inflicted things. They've – you know, they haven't gotten hits with runners on scoring position. Ole Miss has to make sure this weekend does not look like the Arkansas series, where you look across the field and you don't see some great team. You don't see where you're getting blown out of the water. You just can't get the hit. You just can't get the guys in. You just can't quite do enough. For Ole Miss, it's about staying loose, really having good quality of bats up the middle and the other way, and just moving the freaking baseball. If they'll play good defense, if they'll move the baseball, 
think they're going to pitch well enough. You know, but Josh Mallis has done a nice job to kind of counteract there alongside Brandon Johnson. They, they, they don't have John Gaddis in the first game. He has to uh, finish out that fourth game of his suspension. But for Ole Miss, it's really on them. I mean, they're as talented as anybody else this weekend in this regional. It's just can they be something different than they've been for the majority of the season? And for most teams, that is not a possibility. But it's right there on their racket, for lack of a better term. I mean, it, it, it's there for Ole Miss. It's just I, I think you get through the weekend, and if this thing does not work out for Ole Miss, it's not because they're going to be bludgeoned. It's because it's going to look a lot like when they were in Fayetteville and they just can't quite get it done. Yeah, I think Fayetteville is a great example because the the weeks leading into that felt like the slow build into Fayetteville, right? You felt like a little bit of that. Granted, they got kind of blitzed by Alabama to start this, I say start the streak, but that's when the missed opportunities really first felt like they were arriving. Mm-hmm. Not even, even be able to get a game, not be able to pull one of those close games out in the last two. South Carolina not being able to take control of that series. They had every opportunity to take control of that game two. They come back in the game three, but aren't able to get over the top after they scored four runs in the ninth, whatever. And then the state series obviously spoke for itself. They couldn't take advantage of getting to Preston Johnson early. And then the game three, you know, you tie the game and then you don't get anyone else on base. And then it felt like it it, it epitomized all of that in Arkansas. That felt like the worst one because you felt like Ole Miss could have left Arkansas with this, available with the sweep and like wouldn't have been shocked based on the way like the three games were played. And it's like, how in the world did they only win one of those games? So I'm with you there. That's why I can't really pick them in the regional because it's just looked like missed opportunity after missed opportunity for so much of this season. Like you said, it's asking them to be something they really haven't been outside of small, small stretches. Now is a regional, a large sample size. Is that a long stretch? No, but the mistakes are amplified and it matters the most, you know, that it not moving the ball stranding, you know, back to, I mean, what was the Arkansas stretch? If you go back to back stranding two guys on with less than two outs in the fifth and sixth inning, that'll end your season. You know, I think they were four for 34 runners on. Oh, it was horrendous. I mean, they they had a combined seven guys on base with no outs in three innings in that series and didn't get a run. I mean, that's an extreme example, but like that'll end your season now. So will booting a ball at short if you're Jacob Gonzalez. I'm just using him as an example. Like that's the kind of stuff to where like you don't really get it tomorrow or you get thrown in a loser bracket in game one and you're toast. The other point you made there I thought was an important one where it's stating the obvious, right? You give them – Whoever wins game one between Ole Miss and Arizona, you give 30, 40% chance to win somewhere in there. I think it's also like that's especially true because, like you said, no one has the pitching depth to get through this regional. But without knowing exactly how deep Miami and Arizona's bullpens are, Ole Miss's bullpen has been pretty good for the last month. Um, I Kendall, credit to Kendall and Aaron, they, they had a stat in their regional preview to where the combination of like what I think it was like Mallets, Johnson, Nichols, Gaddis was in there too. Yes, yeah, somewhere in there had a 2.03 ERA over the month of May. And so I would say all that to say, you think about that game one, if they can just get to that game and play Miami, if they lose that game because of the other two teams' lack of pitching and the lack of depth, they could actually still have a shot. Now, I wouldn't put you know any sort of money on them to win the regional after they lost that Miami game. But like even if they won that first game, they lost the second one to Miami and then got into the losers bracket. I wouldn't actually declare them dead like I would in years past where they've gone to regionals with literally three pitchers and hoping to hit their way out of it. I think the lack of depth across the board on the pitching would give them a decent chance to win it after game one. I don't want to say regardless of what happened in game two. I'm just saying I wouldn't count them out if they get the first win and they go one and one, if that makes any sense. Delucia and Elliot are not eligible answers. Who who has to really play well? Who do you 
who has to kind of be the MVP of this weekend if Ole Miss wins this regional? Are we talking anyone or are we talking pitchers? Uh, whatever. No, anybody. Whatever you want. There's probably a better answer from a hitter that I can't think of right now, but isn't it Drew McDaniel? There's going to come a point where he's going to have to give them something, whether it's a start, whether it's long relief. And just when you thought you had something with him with back-to-back outings against Southern Miss and whomever it was before that, um, then it goes just completely sideways in that game three. And it's like, one, Mike left the guy out there to drive, but you did give up a three-run home run and a grand slam in the same inning. I mean, that's that's tough to do. And so you just wonder – like and you, some of the counts he gets in too. It's like, how did this happen? Like, how did this unravel so quickly? And then he walking off the mound like someone shot his dog. And it's like, isn't this guy really talented? Like, it, this doesn't make any sense. And so, what version of Drew McDaniel are going to get? Because winners bracket, losers bracket, whatever. I think they're going to need something from him this weekend. So that may not be the best answer. But outside of that, I don't really know what else because the hitting has been so erratic. Like I would say, someone in the bottom of the order. But the bottom of the order has actually kind of been good for the last two weeks. It's been the guys that are top. So I'm going with McDaniel. What's yours? It's McDaniel from that standpoint for sure. You know, here's the deal, though. That's on Mike. He's got it because, look, we can debate why Drew is the way Drew is as far as you know, mentally. He needs certain things. He can get down on himself. Like you said, he kind of walks off like, you know, like, 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 like his dog died sometimes. But some of that is he has to be a starter and he has to come in with clean innings. It just is what it is. Whether he should or shouldn't is, is, is irrelevant. If Mike uses him in a relief role to try to get out of a leverage situation, he's probably not going to do it. That's just not the way Drew McDaniel was wired. He needs to be a starter where everything is really clean and even when he comes into the game. That is the best way to get the optimal performance out of him. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's an if necessary start or something like that where you you know hand the ball to Drew and go, hey, go send us into a super regional, see what you can get done right here. And, you know, and on the other side, and I'm not really blaming him from an at-bat standpoint, but it's Jacob Gonzalez. He's a first-round pick next year. Go be a first-round pick in the course of this weekend. Get hot. Um, you know, you you look at his stats. His, his batting average is down in the 270s, 280s, or whatever it is for the season, way down from last year. But his BABIP, batting average on balls in play, is is horrendously bad. He's been unlucky. He's the same hitter. His his OPS is over 1,000. He's had a good year. He just needs a couple balls to fall. He needs a few breaks to come his way. They need Gonzalez to have that big week where he proves that he's the best hitter on the field, no matter who Ole Miss has played. He needs to play clean defense. He had a big error over the weekend last weekend. That has not been a thing. He's actually filled the ball pretty well in league play once once the weather warmed up a little bit. But he's a guy that can gear them a little bit. You know, you need Tim to run a ball out of the ballpark, but Tim's also going to strike out some. It's, it's, it's what he is. You hope that he continues to do that and gives you the extra base hits, the home runs. You know, this Arizona Ole Miss game is so interesting because everybody has it in their heads, probably from both fan bases of last year, when it was this super regional matchup and these both teams that are pretty loaded. These are two teams with the same things across the chest, but they're not the same clubs. Neither one of these is anywhere near the same clubs, even though Ole Miss has so many guys back. So, you know, a Gonzalez, as somebody like that, that really gets going, that could easily be the difference that just kind of carries one of these teams through this thing. It it almost feels like it's Susack against Gonzalez and which one just kind of goes, you know, haymaker mode this weekend. It's a fascinating way to look at it. I think that's a great answer as well. And then you're, you're right about them not being the same teams. Isn't that evident with the fact that they're going to start Irvin? Like I understand you can't make a decision off of game two and three of a super regional in 2021, but like, I think part of the reason they're going with Irvin is because Ole Miss hasn't been very good against left-handed pitching this year, whereas last year that was kind of a narrative going into the year, but was actually proven to be a little bit of a myth. And it's the same guy who got tagged last year and only got four outs. It's seven of the same nine hitters. But I imagine 
I forget Arizona's coach's name, but actually he probably has to feel pretty damn confident in Irvin um, more so than he did last year, given it's the same lineup because it, it, it may be the same lineup, but it's very clear. It, it's not, it's not the same results and it's not the same production. I'm curious to see how that goes though, because Irvin had the same kind of statistics last year. It's like, dude, this guy was an innings eater in the Pac-12 mm-hmm. had one bad outing in the Pac-12 tournament. And then Ole Miss obviously got after him. Like, you know, small sample size, do you make it up to West Coast baseball, not necessarily being as potent offensively? I don't know. But I am curious to see about how the first four innings of this game go because you mentioned earlier they can't get behind. And what does it look like? Are they having terrible at-bats to him the first th- time through the order? Because I think that's telling. Like, even if they're not up 3 nothing or they are only scored a run through the first three innings, how it looks I think will be super important because you've seen times that this year where pitchers that aren't even really that talented – look effortless going through this lineup sometimes and it makes you scratch your head. So I'm curious to see what the first four innings of this looks like. Cause then get by that, get up a little bit early. I think they'll be fine. Well, and some of that is just how, you know, some of that is mindset related for Ole Miss because when you got a guy who's left-handed and he's kind of a thumber and he's up in the, he's up in the eighties and he pitches you backwards. If you're over eager and you're anxious and you're pressing, you're going to look like raw hell against him. I mean, you're going to be swinging over everything. You're going to be rolling over it. You're going to be popping the ball up. It's going to be a mess. So, in some ways, the way Irvin pitches is going to allow us to get a glimpse into Ole Miss's psyche offensively and kind of how they're swinging, what their mindset is. Because, yeah, if you're on him and you're kind of dialed, because they were they were loose, but they were loose last year in that game because Doug Nikhazy was pitching. Yep. Ole Miss was always loose when Doug Nikhazy was pitching. So, you know, it, it's not quite that level of juice when Delush is out there, but I do think Ole Miss is a better team with Delush on the mound. I do think they believe in themselves. You know, I thought they played okay against Vanderbilt. I know it wasn't perfect. I know I, I know that, you know, they were one for 17 runners on base. It was far from ideal, but I thought they just lost the baseball game. I didn't think they were pressing. I didn't think they were doing anything overly stupid. I just think that at times they're not very good offensively, and that was one of those days, and they were facing a really, really good pitcher in the freshman from for, for the Commodore. So, yeah, I think that I, I think the first few innings gives you a glimpse in a number of ways that if you were facing a power arm, that wouldn't necessarily be the case because you could just not be catching up to his stuff and it wouldn't be the same kind of deal. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated whenever this game does happen, whether it's to, you know, today as people are listening or Saturday or Sunday or whatever. Again, they can play through Tuesday with no extra waivers or help or anything like that. They can do a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday series if it is absolutely necessary. And then I, if they had to go into Wednesday, they probably would have go ahead and allow it. Yeah, Colin mentioned we talked about this, and Colin's like, "Well, there is precedent with the women's golf." And I did; it wasn't a well actually, but I was like, "Hey, man, did you see the condition of that golf course when they came to that?" Those people weren't mad at the steps because of the rain; they were mad at those people running the tournament or the NCAA charge. I mean, wasn't the that was the story? It was down in Baton Rouge, and the men's team got to practice on that course after they came yes. to the women's regional. So it, it wasn't because of a washout. I think they'll do what they need to do to get it done. Um, but loving the weather takes this week, maybe can you move it to Tampa? So one guy suggested Kendall or Rogers. Why not just move it to Oxford? Great point, man. I cannot see a reason why Miami would not want to do that. So. <laughs> well, no, look, Miami is sitting here catbird. They're playing the first game of the day because they're, they're, they're not as worried about attendance like Ole Miss would be, like where they want the nightcap and the yeah. big showcase game. But they're also playing the first game of the day because they see the weather and they go, nope, we're trying to get a win and get the hell out of here for the day and let, it, let, let everybody else figure it out. Speaking of the attendance, I saw a quote from one of the guys, and I don't mean to make fun, but the, he he was talking about this is why we came to Miami. We came to play in front of regional crowds, in front of five thousand people, and it kind of just you can't you can't help but smirk because you know the atmosphere, and that's another I think real thing for Ole Miss. Not that they've really been shrunken by atmospheres this year, but hey, five thousand is different than twelve thousand screaming at you. And then the last thing on the weather, like 
part of me when I saw that outcome is one, I think that's definitely why Miami did it. But the strategy of moving it up till nine and just 55 minutes after it is let's give as much daylight as possible to try to squeeze yeah. as much baseball. Let's go ahead and get on the field and then we'll just see if we can get some windows. We'll be a long day at the ball yard, but let's just look up at the end of the day and see how much we get in. Which because, frankly yeah. could end up screwing Miami because they could be playing for an hour and a half and then get washed out the rest of the day and they've ruined their arm. That is also very true. So I mean, that is the counter catch-22 of this, is that Miami could get stuck on the field with a pitcher ruined. Yes. Um, That's definitely not going to apply to Ole Miss because Dylan DeLucia could throw 100 pitches and then have a seven-hour delay, and Mike Beck, you're probably good for 50 more. So I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that DeLucia will finish the game once he starts it. That is is coming. I threw this at Colin. Remember in the the super – like Ellis didn't pitch well in 14, Ellis didn't pitch well on Friday, and you were like wondering if he'd come back Monday. Mm -hmm. If you have like the rain, like there's no – or whatever the scenario is this year, if Ole Miss has a winner to take on Monday, there is zero question who's getting the baseball in that game, right? Like we've seen this all year. Like in past years, it's like, well, will he actually do this to where it's like, no, we like he's doing this. And you go Elliot, whomever in the super, and you hope you get to a game three and you hand him the ball again and see what Pretty happens. Pretty much. Well, I mean, yeah. Mike just might hand it to him again on Friday. But, yes, yeah. I generally agree with your sentiment. So let's run around some of these other regionals a little bit, just some quick takes. I mean, we don't do anything crazy because we don't know a ton about all 64 teams in the country by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, is there anything in this Knoxville regional that you think is going to give Tennessee any pause, Tennessee, Alabama State, Georgia Tech, and Campbell? Nope, other than feeling bad for the two and the three to get sent there. Because, look, I know you can't do the SEC on SEC, uh, like, regional, right? But, like, how does it make any sense that, like, Georgia Tech and – like, they don't – there's no rhyme or reason to the twos or threes after that beyond a little geography. Like, it, it's kind of screwy mm-hmm. that Ole Miss gets this regional as the last team in the field where the poor Campbell Camels and whatever Georgia Tech was. It's like, here's a death sentence. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting about this is not even Knoxville. It's where they're paired. They're paired with yeah. the 16 seed Statesboro, Georgia Southern, the one, a really, really tough regional. Uh, UNC Greensboro, the four, Link Jarrett's former school. And then uh, Notre Dame and Texas Tech, they're in the two and three. Notre Dame gets screwed out of a host. They should have been a host. They should have had their own regional. And people are going to point to it and go, yeah, but they get sent to the 16. Yeah, but they got paired up with Knoxville. I mean, if, if you want to look at snubs and go you know, outside of NC State, and you want to look a little deeper in the bracket, the two that are very obvious are Oklahoma not hosting. We'll get to them in a minute when we get to that regional. And then two, Notre Dame not hosting and being paired with Tennessee. Like, no, you're, 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 take, you're taking a Notre Dame team that was really, really good in the ACC. You're not giving them a host. And you're going, yeah, sure, you get Georgia Southern. But then you got the Vols next week in Knoxville. Which, good luck. No, nothing surprised me in this regional, though. I mean, Tennessee rolls. I do think Campbell finishes second. I'm with you there. They got a pretty I think good Campbell program. goes ahead of it stays uh beats Georgia Tech. Is God bless Alabama State. Yeah, Whatever. sorry to those guys. Is there a run rule on for that? There's not, no. That's tough. They've got a pretty good program for a SWAC school, too. I remember back in the 2015, they actually had a team that I think may have gotten in as a three one time. I could have that wrong, but uh is that where Marvel Melendez was? Yes, that's exactly where it was. Okay. Yeah. For Ole Miss people, he was at Bethune-Cookman prior to that and had a really good program at Bethune-Cookman. He actually just stepped down from FIU. I've told this story a hundred times. The only reason I know SWAC baseball is because that year I was at D1. I mm-hmm. had to call all of the SWAC coaches. Uh, we'll have one coach that will remain unnamed three weeks out of the season. Didn't know his lineup and didn't know how many seniors he had. So I'm not sure what they had done to roll the balls out uh, as far as preseason prep that year. It was not Alabama State, I can tell you that much. So... 
in Palo Alto, Stanford's the one just pitched the ever loving hell out of it um, for the for the Cardinal. Binghamton is the four. Texas State, the two. They've got some really good midweek wins. And then UC Santa Barbara, I think they won their conference tournament. I think they got the band up with the automatic out there instead of Gonzaga. Um, so Stanford, Binghamton, Texas State, and UC, UC Santa, Santa Barbara. I love that 2-3 game. That's a really good 2-3 game between Texas State and the uh, and the Gauchos. But I just have a hard time believing anybody is hitting Stanford's pitching to get out of that regional other than the Cardinal. I do, too. My one counter is that Texas State has a very good bats. And how many years in this tournament over the last decade or half decade where, like, the number one or number two overall seed has been a Pac-12 team that pitches the hell out of it and they just throw a complete dud in their own regional? The 2015 one when Ole Miss was out there, um, who won that? Did Maryland or San, did Santa Barbara end up winning that? I can't remember who it was. But, like, you say it was number one overall seed through a dud. There's uh, there's another UCLA team where Michigan went out there and got them. Um, you almost had one of those Loyola schools do it. Like it's, I'm with you. I think Stanford comes out of it, but if, if Tennessee state or excuse me, Tennessee state, Texas state just rake through that regional because it kind of turns out mm-hmm. to where you're pac 12, all pitching, no bats, it wouldn't stun me. Yeah. And in, in 19, Michigan did that to both of them. They, they're yeah. super regional in their regional. One was in Oregon state. One was at UCLA. That's right. Talk about so it. They ran through multiple pac 12 teams to get to the, uh, to get to Omaha and end up finishing second in the country losing to Vanderbilt in, uh, in three games in that national title. Speaking of Oregon State, uh, the big one is, can Vanderbilt look like Vanderbilt? Oregon State, the one, New Mexico State, the four, and then a also kind of intriguing Vanderbilt-San Diego 2-3 game. Yeah, I uh, I think that is intriguing. I, I Whatever influx of like wagering there is this week on college baseball, I think they'll see Vanderbilt as the two with some pretty juicy odds and take them. But I think Oregon State rolls this regional. I don't think Vanderbilt's very good. Now, look. They hold Holton and they get through the two three game, you know, and Holton beats Oregon State. Okay, then you're talking about something different. But I, I don't see this regional as very strong. I think Oregon State rolls. Why do you think Vanderbilt's been not as good? What's the deal with them this year? Well, they're having to split up that scholarship money, and there's some years where they can't just have a big class. I really have no idea. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem like I mean, outside of Holton, who's been a freshman and pitched on Sunday for most of the year. Where's their? I know this is an extreme example. Where's their Kumar Rocker? Where's their Jack Lighter? And where's and the look? Guy? There's a fall off because of that. I mean, if, if you have Kumar and Jack, the next year you're not going to look like that looked like. But you know, Vanderbilt runs the risk, and it's always relative because they're a really good. They're they're good every damn year. Don't get me wrong, but some year they're more prospect than player, and I feel like that's kind of where they are right now. They got a lot of guys that have really good juice, guys who. You go, yeah, in the major leagues or in the minor leagues or in the draft, we see where that's going to work. But they're just not polished, and they haven't polished them very well. And they, it's it, there's a little bit of that going on with Vanderbilt right now. But you know, look, Spencer Jones, Enrique Bradfield. It, I, I know it's not the typical Vanderbilt, but when Oregon State saw that pop up, that's still not the hell who you want to see out there in your regional. No, that is for sure. And like it's been on the back end too, right? I think that Maldonado kid missed a month of the season, and his ERA. Mm-hmm. Is- awful since he came back so i think you're right more prospect than they actually have actual juice in terms of arm so oregon state all the way number four national seed and really the surprise story of the year when it comes to success the virginia tech Hokies have not been a very big baseball team at all over the years but they are a uh, they are a host they are a national seed they get Wright state which wins the horizon every freaking year it seems like Wright state always in the uh the ncaa tournament and then uh, Columbia and Gonzaga, the two-three game. Can the Zags actually uh, make a little bit of a run here? They're pretty good most of the year. They're across the country, and then they get uh, they get Columbia, which somehow ended up being a three seed. 
I've watched zero Virginia Tech games this year. Colin is all in on the Hokies. He thinks they're really good, so I'll follow his gut. But, you know, Gonzaga <laughs> had a pretty good year. They're kind of in the hosting conversation for a bit. I think that Gonzaga is sneaky and, and, and not bad if they can hit enough. But I'll tell you what's interesting about this is this is a huge break for Virginia Tech because when you're new like this, there's going to be some nerves. There's going to be some stuff kind of going on through through you a little bit. You're going to fight through. Even if, like, I mean – Look, John Chef's a good coach. He'll figure it out. I mean, they, they, they're a good team. They should run through this regional. But there is something to that first time. And when you don't have a name across the field from a uniform standpoint that you have to kind of be a little more wary of, I think it's a huge help. When you look over in Gonzaga as your biggest competitor, and that's not some baseball powerhouse, I think Virginia Tech will be calmer. They'll play better than if you looked over and it was Vanderbilt across the field and you go, ah, hell, okay. Like you start doubting yourself a little bit, I think, when it's brand new. I mean, you know, look, I mean, it's 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 not a great example, but, you know, Ole Miss did that in 4 First time they host, you know, they lose to Western Kentucky. They kind of get bombed a little bit by Washington the next day. You know, it happened to Virginia back in the really start of Brian O'Connor. I, I think teams that are elevating like that, it really helps to host that first regional without some perennial power on the field Oregon, LSU last year, and uh, mm-hmm. Eugene. LSU was one of the last teams in the field, probably got done a favor, and they kind of got uniform too. Yeah. <laughs> what do we make of this Texas A&M team? Number five national seed, Oral Roberts. We get the Schlosh Bowl as TCU is in town to face their former coach. And then uh, the Louisiana Raging Cajuns with Matt Daggs. He, uh, they are the three seeds. So TCU, ULL, and then A&M facing Oral Roberts. This could get weird, but I just think Texas A&M's offense here. Tennessee got all the pub, but if you look up at the conference statistics only, and outside of hitting the ball over the fence, Texas A&M was a better offense than Tennessee in most every category. They moved the ball more. They struck out less. They walked more. They did pretty much everything better except hit the ball over the fence. I think this probably could you know, be a competitive regional, but I, I just like their offense too much. I think they get through it. I think I agree. I mean, because in some ways, I don't really like TCU or, or ULL. There's not a clear second team where I go, hey, no, this is really scary. You know, TCU will have some motivation. Sarloose obviously will know everything about Schlossnagel's system, but for the most part, if they can get any pitching at all, A&M is just a better team in in this regional. Now, they can't really pitch. I don't like them at all on the mound. Look, A&M, though, needs to stay clean, and I think they will. But A&M is a team that you let them lose the game and get into some Saturday, Sunday, Monday if necessary. I think it's squirrely in a hurry, the Aggies. They're, uh, I did. I saw this today. I just happened to be uh, at uh, leaving the office and it popped across my Twitter. They're giving the ball to Micah Dallas against the four seed. Look, I think they'll get through the game, but that kid is he hasn't been a, a semblance of what he was when he's at Texas Tech. And if you look at his last couple outings, I get it was SEC play, he's blown up and blown up quick. You get down four nothing to who's the four seed in this? Oral Roberts. Uh, Oral Roberts. Ole Miss saw them. Uh, didn't Oral Roberts took a game? Like it, that could get that could get squirrely in a heartbeat. That's something to watch out for at the start. I'm surprised they gave him the ball. I wouldn't have obviously gone with Detmer, but the guy you took out of the rotation for a month, that's a bold play. So Oklahoma State in Stillwater, they're the seven overall national seed. They face a really good Missouri State club in the uh, in the first round. The uh, the four seed, the team that's been getting all the pub this week for being at the Microtel Hotel, that's had all the the bed bugs and apparently the the women's garments and the the eyelashes and the blood and God knows what else there in their hotel rooms. Um, half of them have been moved to another hotel now. Half of them, there is no room availability anywhere else. They have to stay in this hotel, so their team has been halved um, between the two places. 
a Missouri State team that's been a three seed in the past and actually has been to a super regional as well. They're a good ball club. Um, so it, a little bit of a tricky four there for Oklahoma State. And then a two three that's it, I think it is maybe the second best two three game of the uh, of the year, Arkansas and Grand Canyon in a pretty cool two three game. I'm with you there. How does that work? How does the NCAA not have a Marriott deal? How does the travel booker for the NCAA back micro tell? Like done. Is that really like it that's is, just like a low level? I just don't understand. Like how is that how does that happen? The way I interpreted it, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Somebody can correct me, is it's up to whoever the like tournament coordinator at Oklahoma State is to give every team fair and equal lodging. Um, oh, that'll go over well at the at the ball yard this weekend. That uh, I wouldn't call that fair and equal. Um, and it's not like you're like, oh, well, I didn't know where this hotel was. You're in Stillwater. I've been to Stillwater, not very big. Um, I guarantee they knew exactly where that hotel was. So, well, the, the the two parts of that is they almost tried to kind of blame Missouri State. They're like, well, you know, the visiting team is supposed to like confirm the arrangements, and it's like, okay, they until they get to the hotel, how the hell are they supposed to do that? Yeah, they don't. And there. then, and then two. I don't know. There, there, there's something about it. Like it's one thing if it happened at, like you said, a residence in or a Hampton Inn or a Hilton Garden Inn, where it's a very reputable chain, and you go, "Hey, I don't know. The hotel did some weird stuff. We're really sorry." But when you stick them in the micro hotel and then it's screwed up, that's completely on you at that point. And they're going to blame someone else. When's the last time you've seen the athletic department just go, "Yep, that's on us. We threw you in a shithole knowingly. <laughs> we thought we'd get away with it, and we did it. Sorry, that's on us. That's never going to happen." Even though I would actually respect it more if it did. Yeah, instead of like just completely looking at uh, looking at it and going, no, 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 your fault. You should have known. I don't know. Like it's 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 whatever. I like Oklahoma State here. I don't think Arkansas is actually very good. And I'm not sure Grand Canyon should have gotten in the tournament. That two three will be a good game, but I think Oklahoma State rolls. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Arkansas is just nowhere near last year's Arkansas team. Speaking of uh, of changes from one year to the next, there's no Kevin Cops on those Razorbacks right now. Their pitching is kind of weird offensively. You know. Bob Morris having a rough year. It's uh, it's 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 not a great Arkansas team. And then the uh, number eight national seed, the winners of eighteen straight games, Cliff Godwin and East, East Carolina East Carolina Pirates. They open up with Coppin State, and then uh, if from a name value standpoint, good two three game Virginia and Coastal Carolina. They're in Greenville, North Carolina, along with uh, along with East Carolina. Cliff's had his by far his best coaching job, not just record national seed, but. He lost his best arm at the beginning of the year. He's had some other issues. He's had to move people around. I mean, it's been it's almost, it's been almost like a damn little league team on how he's had to manage them. And he's uh, he's won a lot of games. I I really hope they get through well. I'm taking them to get through. They're hot. I, trendy picks work. Virginia and Coastal. I actually think uh, EC might actually have the second or third worst odds to get out of this regional. Um, as we went through last night. So I'm uh, but I'm taking ECU. I think Cliff and the Pirates get through. It's Virginia if they don't, right? I think. I don't know much about Coastal, though, but I think it's Virginia. I think Virginia's pretty good. Do you think East Carolina's starting to fill some demons? I mean, they're, they're the team has been yes. three Super Regionals under Cliff. I mean, they've gotten through Regionals okay, but I mean, just, just from being around college baseball, where do you think their head is right now? Um, They better be glad that, like, 08 Mike Bianco's not their coach. Um, I don't think it's the – I wouldn't say it's the strongest of head spaces. I'm, I'm with you there. I think there's something to it. Yeah, he, he – I feel like Cliff needs an Omaha. Yeah. For whatever that means no, or, that, or whatever it doesn't mean. 
it's not when, when are you going to get a better path is their first national seed in school history isn't it top eight yeah it's a little bit tricky on the other side they're paired with the uh, number nine seed which is texas so you're obviously dealing with a very difficult game one from an arm standpoint if you win and it goes scratch and and, and texas is in your place the next week texas air force louisiana tech and dallas baptist texas outside of Tennessee has the easiest uh, route other than Air Force does have an arm. I think that's – Texas is going to win, but they have to throw their ace. Air Force can at least give them some trouble. If they win on Friday, that is a cake regional. This Dallas Baptist team is not a normal Dallas Baptist. They really struggled through the Missouri Valley. They won some midweek games. They won a lot of midweek games, but they, they had a hard time on the back half of conference play, and Louisiana Tech is fine, but nothing special. I, I – I, that's kind of what worries you a little for East Carolina if you're pulling it for them to get over the hump is that kind of speaking of like name across the chest, I don't think it's going to be an easy route where you end up with a lot tech or somebody to get there or Dallas Baptist. I think they're going to have to beat the burn orange and beat Texas the next week. Stronger too. And I would have, would have probably picked somewhere else, but uh, I'm with you there. I think Texas gets out of this. I don't think DBU is very good. I don't know what to make a tack. They had to win their conference tournament to get in. I think they can hit it a little bit. And then uh, the Air Force thing, having a guy makes it interesting, but, I mean, they won't contend for that regional. But, yeah, I'm taking Texas. So, skinning up a little bit, uh, speaking of, I think also a pretty easy regional. I think there was some some favors done here a little bit. The number 10 overall seed, the North Carolina Tar Heels, they've had a good second half of the year. They opened with Hofstra. And then Georgia and VCU, a Georgia team that is really scuffled, has not been very good. Jonathan Cannon can be excellent when he's healthy, but they, they, they've had a hard time getting pitching for three days. And then speaking of uh, teams that Ole Miss has seen, and then getting a three seed here, a team that I thought would have been a four VCU. So North Carolina only having to go through a pretty banged up, beaten up Georgia team, VCU and Hofstra to move on to the next round. When you saw VCU the second week of the season or whenever they're in Oxford, what are the odds would you have given that they got to 30, 40 wins? They look terrible. I'm surprised they're a three seed. They could hit a little bit. But um, but yeah, from a pitching standpoint, it was just no chance at all. Like it was, it was very little. Georgia's throwing uh, cannon against VCU. That actually sways my pick. I might have taken the dogs, but I'm taking North Carolina now. That doesn't make any sense to me. So who is going to come out and face Miami, Arizona, or Ole Miss? The regional is in Hattiesburg. Southern Miss, Army. Army's actually gone on a pretty good run the last few years. LSU and Kennesaw State. Is it the Tigers or is, is, is it the Golden Eagles? I think Southern gets out of this. I think the trendy pick is LSU, but I'm not like sure LSU is very good. And I don't really know what Barry's status is and the other kid. Um, maybe they're back for it and that changes things. But I think Southern Miss, this is kind of their year, one of the best years, maybe the best year in school history. I think they get it done. Um, I like Southern Miss to come out of this regional. Southern Miss has a guy and LSU doesn't, particularly on the mound. I don't know if they may hold him against Army. I haven't seen that yet. Um, but uh, I think Southern Miss is much better than the other three teams in this region, to be completely honest. What is LSU's route? I mean, do you feel like Mikel Hilliard has it in him? I mean, do you feel like they get something out of money down the road? I mean, if I tell you LSU has won this regional on Sunday or Monday, have they just hit their way through it, or is there an arm or two that actually makes sense that got hot and, and carried them through this thing? No, I don't I, I don't see it. I haven't watched a ton of LSU, but I don't see it from the arm standpoint. I mean, my – I mean, this sounds stupid, but does like do they make it through if Army pulls an upset or like you know what I mean? Like I, I just don't really see it. Um, I mean, I get look they, you know, you play that. I mean, if you beat Southern Miss and you know it's one game, whatever, depending on who they throw, 
Um, then obviously that changes things, but no, I, I don't really see the path. I, I don't get it. Maybe they can bash their way. They're fully healthy offensively, but outside of that, I really don't see it from an arm standpoint. Hypothetically, just for the hell of the conversation, Ole Miss wins. Are they better off in Baton Rouge or Hattiesburg next week? They are much better off in Baton Rouge. Imagine typing that sentence, you know, <laughs> like six months ago, six weeks ago, a year ago, like, or at any point in history. This, they are but you much, think so? I think they're much better off in Baton Rouge. I'm not saying that just because they swept them. I think they're a, a better baseball team than LSU. Do you agree? Disagree? LSU is a better offensive team. Um, I think Southern has more arms. You're right. I, I, I think Southern could give you trouble in a three-game series, but it's even beyond that. And see, this is another crazy statement, but it only goes for Ole Miss State. In Baton Rouge, you're getting an environment you're so well aware of. It's going to be crazy. It's whatever. But for people who haven't been down there, even for a midweek regular season game, I can't describe the hostility and the vitriol that would be awaiting Ole Miss in a super regional series in Hattiesburg. It would be wild. Yeah, if that makes it, it's more open and like on top of you. Like, I mean, you could have dudes sneaking in there with like a bow staff or something, and it wouldn't shock me. Like, it's it's not the tightest run operation. I, uh, I, I'm with you there. That would be a weird, different kind of hostile. Where LSU just feels like a big stage. And they were, I mean, sure, they were in Baton Rouge a few weeks ago and they swelled. It's not like they haven't done it. And annihilated. I mean, it's been right there. Although Mike Bianco against his kid to save his job and go to Omaha would be quite the storyline next week. What do you do with that? Do you like bring out the bus they have of him outside the stadium and like sacrifice it to try to throw some bad juju on? I mean, that would just be talking about the storylines. ESPN would probably just stick a camera outside the stadium and every 30 seconds, like let's get the bus on some B roll. Um, you'd have one on Cammy, um, probably one on Skip Berkman if they got him in there. That would just be TV porn. Quick aside from 10,000 feet, because I'm, I mean, I'm in it so much every day that I'm starting to question my own opinions. Why do you think Mike's been so much calmer and looser the last month and a half? Because typically when the job's at stake and he's aware of it, because you can't tell me he's not aware of it with that Schlossnagel tweet and everything that played out. He has this weird, almost kind of resignation about him. Not that he's giving up or anything. I think in a lot of ways he's grown to be more of, hey, I'm just trying to, to use a cliche, controlling what I control and I can coach my team and I can make sure they stay locked in. I can try to keep them off social media. I can, you know, talk to my staff. I can do these things. But he's not doing that freak out panic thing that we have seen from him in some past seasons. You ever get tired of stressing about something and just throw your hands up and just like, I, it is what it is and I'll live with the results? Something you've been like massively stressed about over some lengthy period of time. And look, this is probably sure. not the example, but like Mike from what, 08 on, probably 08, to, not 08 on. Uh, I always forget to put this in two parts. 08 to 13, he probably had some stress about his job after the Supers, particularly after 09. You know, 14 gets in a little bit of a reprieve. The 16 regional happens. And it's like, okay, what's up here? Thinking 17, obviously from 17 through Black Monday on, it's been kind of the same narrative and the same stress. I just think he probably knows that this team is – is what it is. Look, we can get into the program building part of it and why this team stinks. We've got, we've talked about this on the pod before, but just the sheer pushing the buttons of what this roster is. It's not really his fault that they stink, right? Like that's nothing he's doing from a managerial standpoint, not putting them in positions to succeed. So I think he's probably just at peace with the fact that, Hey, these, I like being around these kids. I'm not sure they're as good as we thought they were. They've definitely underperformed. What else can I do? 
And at a certain point, I think it's just like, what am I stressing about? It's been 22 years. I, I don't, I, this is a guess. I don't know anything about Mike Bianca's headspace, but at a certain point, I would just look up and say, look, okay, if it finally happens, it happens. We just weren't good enough. And I've been here 22 years. This is a pretty good career. I think it'd be different if he'd have been fired in 13. It's like, wow, I really never got these guys over the hump. This is all this was. I just think at a certain point, I mean, you ever stressed about something for 22 years? Like, well, how far does that go? 30? Is he still pulling his hair out on the hot seat in 28 years? I just think at a certain point, he probably runs out of ways to stress. He also got his, and look, you can't tell me this doesn't matter. These people are humans. He got his youngest kid out of high school. He doesn't have to move her. He's not letting her down where he's taking her away from friends and different things. I mean, she's going to she's going to Ole Miss to study journalism next year. I mean, she's making her own decision whether he's the Ole Miss baseball coach or not from that standpoint. Sam's coming back to just be a student next year. I think there is a certain family piece to feeling like you did not let your family down to change what their high school situation is. I think that's exactly right. I mean, he's an empty nester. Like, what if this happens? He moves down to the Florida Keys, grows out some long hair, and we see him in a couple of years like a puka necklace on. This could be a new phase of this man's life. But in all seriousness, I do think I think you're right there. You don't have this rest of that. I mean, could you see him kicking in Oxford for a couple of years and just enjoy having his kids around? Um, it wouldn't stun me if he started walking around the square in his baseball uniform because he doesn't have any other clothes. But like outside of that, I think he's probably resigned to it, you know, to some degree. I, I mean, not resigned in terms of waving the white flag, but just at peace with whatever happens. Well, I, I guess I picked a good uh, a good segue without really realizing it here between these two. The number twelve national seed, the Louisville Cardinals, Ben Bianco, a player, Dan McDonald, his former coach, a coach there at Louisville, obviously. Uh, Southeast Missouri is the opener, the team that run ruled Ole Miss in the midweek earlier this year. And then kind of a sort of a spicy game, Oregon and Michigan, the two, three Michigan getting in by winning the big 10 tournament, getting kind of hot there at the, uh, at the end. And then, as you said, Oregon hosting last year was in a pretty good shape from a bracket standpoint and could not get past LSU. I just, it's, it's hard to see anybody with enough firepower to get past the Cardinals here. This regional stinks. Uh, LH, excuse me, Louisville is going to win it. I just don't think anyone's very good. I mean, Michigan, like, don't be fooled by the name and the program. Oregon's not that good. And honest to God, I forgot about that SEMO game. I don't really know how I could. But if in two years someone was like, hey, you remember in 2022 when Ole Miss got run ruled by SEMO? I'd be like, what you, how drunk are you? No, I, that didn't happen. I, for whatever reason, I remember nothing about that game. The most competitive regional on the bracket is this one. It is in Gainesville, Florida. Florida playing Central Michigan, actually a pretty damn spunky four seed uh, and a difficult game for the Gators in the opener there in a one four and then two three Liberty, who's already won a series against Florida this year is the three and then Oklahoma, as I mentioned, probably should have been a host. Florida is not winning this regional, in my opinion. I think Oklahoma or Liberty can win this regional. I couldn't decide between Oklahoma and Liberty either. I will go uh, Oklahoma. Um, just because they kind of have the stench or the uh, kind of the sting of not being a regional host. I'm with you. I don't think Florida gets out. I'm not even sure it's that particularly close. Um, so I'm, I'm going to you. I'm going to Sooners. Auburn is the number 14 national seed or 15 or something. I don't know, 14. Uh, they open up with Southeast Louisiana, another team that beat Ole Miss in the midweek. I think five to one was what the Lions did over the Rebels. And then the uh, two-three game, good pitching matchup, really, really in this first game. Speaking of uh, of somebody you've already mentioned here, UCLA, and then Parker Messick in uh, Florida State in a two-three. So Auburn, Southeast Louisiana, UCLA, and Florida State. I, I could see UCLA or Florida State winning this regional. 
I could too, but I'm going to pick Auburn, but it'll be one of those dogfight regionals. I think you get a Monday winner take all game and they kind of get out of their skin of the teeth, but Auburn just wins close games. They're kind of like Miami in that sense. They don't do anything overly well. I mean, we were wondering if they were going to make Hoover um, when Ole Miss rolled into there for the SEC opener. And now that they're a host, I think they just win games. They play well, um, well enough in all three phases. I, I think they just know how to win games. I value that at this time of year uh, in particular. So I, I like Auburn. <laughs> I keep going, they have no pitching, but nobody else in the regional has a ton of pitching to this extent. And Florida State has the burn its ace against UCLA. I mean, and they're the three seed. I mean, they're not great them, themselves. I, Auburn definitely has a chance. Butch has done a really good job of maximizing the seasons that he could maximize. Butch has some flaws. He's had deals where the bad season has been pretty bad. He can't seem to recover from them. I mean, look at it. You know, they went 10 and 20 in the league last year. But on years where they've been pretty good, he's done a really good job of maximizing that and, and turning that into a big deal. Um, getting the Super Regionals, getting to the College World Series. Immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, did they get to Omaha in 19 from 14 and 16 in the SEC? Yes. I thought that was right. Because they made it the day that Ole Miss lost to Arkansas and Fayetteville. Yep, you're exactly right. Because they had that game where they scored like 10 runs in the first inning on UNC, and that game was actually over before it started. I think that's what the year was. That's right. Uh, The worst part by far uh, of any of the host sites, the Maryland Terrapins are hosting. Just crappy facilities there in College Park, Maryland. They get uh, Wake Forest as the two, Connecticut as the three, and Long Island as the four. I'm telling you – I, I know I'm sounding like our, our buddy Dick Cross a little here, but Connecticut could get very spunky in this region. Well, Kendall and the, some of the mailbags and Aaron at the, the middle of the year were getting questions about UConn's post. And they're like, come on, guys. Like, look at this non look, look at this schedule of that. I'm not saying they're not good, but there's no shot. I mean, if, it's pretty good. But I actually think Dick's comes out of this. I'm not sure Maryland's very good. I think you're back. You're breaking up for a second there. Oh, sorry. Uh, lost him for a second. I, uh, I was just saying, I mean, it's a 46 win three seed. Um, you know, the Kendall and Aaron were getting questions about them hosting and some mailbags in early April. And they're like, come on, guys. Like, the, look at the strength of schedule, look at the RPI. There's no shot. But again, how many times does a three seed win 46 games? I think they're pretty good. I actually think Wake comes out of this regional. I don't think Maryland's very good. Yeah. Uh, we get a Maryland team that I think that it's very possible the Big Ten was almost going to be a one bid league. I mean, because Rutgers didn't get in. So had Maryland won the Big the Big Ten tournament, it very likely was just one team getting into the NCAA tournament for the Big Ten, which is kind of crazy. And then we mentioned at the very top of going over these brackets, Georgia Southern, UNC Greensboro, Notre Dame, and Texas Tech. It's a, it, it, it's a neat 2-3 game. Texas Tech had a big record at times. Their RPI was crap. They, their, their schedule was not very good. Um, I don't think Georgia Southern is winning this regional. I really like Notre Dame in this regional. You worry a little bit about getting tripped up by Tech, but this is not the normal Tech. Speaking of jerseys looking different than the talent on the field, the Fighting Irish are by far the best team in this regional. Georgia Southern, in terms of Vegas, what Colin had pulled up last night, has the third worst odds to win their own regional. And it wasn't actually close. I think they were like plus 270 or plus 280 to get out of their own regional. I'm going to zag here. I think uh, Notre Dame is the best team. Um, I think Texas Tech might be the second best. But uh, I'll I'll give you one X factor. Have you seen how drunk those people get in Statesboro? I don't know how much that stadium holds. Those people <laughs> get after it. So whatever that is is going to be rowdy. They kind of have like a low key sneaky football rowdy atmosphere down there in Statesboro. 
I just think, you know, the team like that doesn't get to host very often. That's one of those regional schools where that community will really, really get behind like a winner. So this is not a logical pick at all, but I, I just, I could see them coming out and blitzing the entire regional. Um, not saying Notre Dame comes in feeling sorry for itself, but I'm going to go against all logic and just go with the Eagles there. Okay. So what was the toughest regional for the host of the odds? Was it Florida? I mean, the argument is Georgia Southern Regional, right? They get the first host in school history, and then it's kind of like, congrats. Like, you get Notre Dame, who probably should have been a host. Texas Tech is not bad. And Greensboro is not actually a terrible four seed by any stretch. So I'd probably go that one. I didn't think Florida got a cakewalk. And then there was one more that I missed in there. Um, Virginia Tech for being the number four overall national seed, getting Gonzaga. I don't necessarily know what to make of Columbia, but I don't think that's the easiest. But outside of that, I couldn't really come up with much. Auburn. Mm-hmm. Just a couple minutes left. We'll, we'll get you off here. I know you've been on the road. You've been driving. Um, it blows up this week. You and I have been texting a little bit about it. The uh, the Saudi back tour getting going here uh, with uh, Dustin Johnson as the headliner. They get some European tour players, um, Sergio Garcia, Lee Westwood among among those, and then getting some amateurs uh, that are apparently getting paid. As you sent me the. Uh, the Monday qualifier uh, Twitter account talking about just millions of dollars potentially for amateurs at this point. I guess my question is how big of a problem is this for the PGA tour? I think it could become one with the younger players. You have a guy like Andy Ogletree, Meridian area, Mississippi kid. I think the town's technically little rock, but that's a kid who's battled injuries or he won night 2019 USAM and has basically had injuries on and off since gets into the Sanderson, had a pretty decent finish in there. Point being an uber talented kid. I mean, you don't win a USAM just by being a fluke. Like that's kind of not the way the tournament's designed. That's a kid that was medalist at second stage of Q school. Now he blew up in the third stage and didn't get the full, like fully exempt status in the corn Ferry tour. But if you make it to corn Ferry tour third stage, you get starts. And I don't know him well enough to like reach out and figure out, but he hasn't start. He hasn't made a single start on the Corn Ferry Tour this year. And I've texted you about that a couple of times. I find that to be odd. Do you think there's any chance he got this Saudi offer back in December? Someone was like, "I'm just not going to screw with this." I mean, that's a kid. Think about a kid like that. What is his other path? So he he goes medalist at second stage of school, gets a handful of guaranteed starts. On the Corn Ferry Tour, if he's lucky, he's going to make anywhere between a hundred and eighty and a hundred. 40 50k maybe 200 if he gets in the top 25 they're paying a little better now third of that goes to travel a third of that if you can afford it goes to your caddy i don't know how there's corn ferry tour setups most of them have local loopers point being that's not actually any money or the other option is you're going to go to canada to chase status for the corn ferry tour the tour i just talked about that doesn't pay you well and just pray to god you don't lose money i talked to buckley and chad ramey about that a while back they were like yeah dude i broke even up there it was awesome made zero money but they got the status so if that's your path, two years of basically being poor, traveling to ridiculous parts of the country you don't necessarily know, in this case, out of the country. And the other option is I can have $6 million guaranteed, 250 k per start, and I don't have to make the cut. Do you think he knows where Saudi Arabia is on the map? He's 22 years old. How how how, how in-depth with geopolitical conflicts do you think he is? Yeah. Um, I know that's probably not the right term here. I'm not fully absolving Andy Ogletree. I'm just using him as an example. That's a talented 21-year-old player that there's probably going to be more of them. Who wouldn't take that path? And so I don't think the problem is with the 40-year-old guys that are soon to be champions tour guys or a guy like Dustin Johnson who just seems to have half a brain and it's like, oh, $150 million? Sure, I don't care about appearances. That's not their problem. 
it's the pro it's the it's the bottleneck they've created to make actual money in golf. When they eliminated getting straight to the PGA Tour from Q School, and you had to go through the Corn Ferry Tour School, which in turn meant you probably had to go through Canada or Latin America. That's going to be their problem. Why, why didn't I'm surprised they didn't ask Davis Thompson or a kid like that, like potential superstars. So I think that's their issue, and I couldn't think. I think it could be a big one. Yeah, for for non golf people, the comparison would be if a kid has to go through Double A for two seasons, and that's all he can do is do Double A, and in, instead of doing that and making whatever that bigger bigger salary is, he is getting paid like the most upper echelon MLB All Star, essentially, yeah, except maybe even more. But he's getting Mike Trout money before he even gets going to play on this other league and do this other thing. Yeah, I mean, look with DJ, you're right; he's a different cat. A, B, look, he's not past his prime, but he's also not doing this at 24. I mean, he is 37 with so many young guns out there today and the way the, the sport's changing a little bit. <sighs> the PGA Tour's problem a little bit is going to be if all the majors still let these people play, if the USGA, if the PGA of America, which for, again, non-golf people is not the PGA Tour, if Augusta, if, if 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 the Royal Nature Club, if they allow these people to play, then what's the benefit at all for these players? Because I can go to Saudi Arabia and I can make all this money and I can do all these different things. And it's not it's not like all the events are in Saudi Arabia, even their first events in London. If they do all these different things, does the player really give a crap if they play the Nissan Open? That's what I'm saying. Like, that's where you actually get hurt is the PGA Tour, just normal event, because what's the incentive for them to play those events? You're missing the players and whatever handful of events you consider iconic on tour. What Riviera, Pebble Beach, Jack's mm. tournament, Arnold's, Arnold Palmer's tournament, name whatever your favorite iconic tournaments are. But do you think those guys actually care? The checks are the same. Like they could probably like, oh, I don't get to play Riviera this year because you know the Saudis are paying me. I mean, Dustin Johnson's case, one hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, what do they care? I think you're dead on. I think that could be a major issue. And the flip side of it, I don't pretend to know anything about like the the intricacies of these governing bodies that run these majors, but why wouldn't they let these guys play? Why would you kind of get – I don't feel like they're going to take a ton of heat for letting Dustin Johnson play the British Open. or uh, Excuse me, the Open Championship. Actually, we won the Ryder Cup. It's the British yeah. Open. Um, but like what, what, why would – they're not going to take a bunch of heat. I don't think anyone's going to be knocking down the – like with the pitchforks, with the RNA's doorstep for letting Dustin Johnson, some of these guys play. So why get in the muck and take some sort of noble stance? I know that sounds backwards and effed up, but I'm just thinking from a public relations standpoint for them, I don't think they're going to take the heat. So I think they'll let them play them. And to your point, if they do, who cares? Like, I mean, if you're, if you're Taylor Gooch or even like a Robert Garrigus – who was the first guy to ask for his release, but isn't playing the first event, found that to be odd. But if you're like a Taylor Gooch, it's like, oh, I can play the majors and make more money than I'd make on tour. What do I care about Colonial? They're not going to have a huge PR issue until they lose one of the younger guys, until it's a Morikawa or a Scheffler or somebody along those lines, I think. From that standpoint, but no, overall, I mean, it's the AMs, as you mentioned, it's the talent pool. Yeah, look, nobody cares that Robert Garris goes plays. Go ahead, have at it. You have those status. I mean, look, Ricky Fowler was like a useful idiot when he talked about going to play because he has no, he barely has status over here. He's not winning anything. It doesn't really matter at this at this point. I I completely get why he would do that at his at, the, at this juncture of his career from that standpoint. But no, they have a. We don't know what the punishment's going to be yet. 
I don't think they're about to go up, throw up some three-year bans or anything along those lines. I just think it's too punitive for them. I, I think that's punishing yourself too much for that. But at the same time, they've gone in a corner so much that they're going to have to do something with some teeth. And that's what I'm fascinated by here is what the actual punishment looks like to Adusta Johnson. Well, and then once there's a punishment, aren't they going to take this to court? And then I'm not a legal scholar by any stretch, but the whole independent contractor thing, I get mm. that people misconceive independent contractors to mean like, well, you can do whatever you want. And you're an independent contractor. It's like, well, no, that's not actually what that means. But I, I don't like the tour's chances of banning a guy who goes to any competitor and it's a one-year contract and so could they get away with like hey you can't play this while you're playing it but you can't like they could come back to the pga tour i, I don't that make your money and come back i don't know how it goes but i do think that some sort of legal battle will follow any sort of suspension so i i don't think the tour is in a strong of position as maybe some think it is the saudi tour obviously has so much money but they have horrid leadership they have no organization whatsoever and everything's kind of just being thrown together as it comes for the most part. I guess my question is, at some point, isn't it very possible they just sort of almost kind of shoot themselves and commit some sort of suicide that kills their own tour for some reason? I mean, there are going to be some players that do not want to do it because of the human rights elements involved in, in, in this situation for sure. I mean, like, there's not a chance in hell Jordan Spieth is going to Saudi Arabia to play golf. Um but I do find it kind of fascinating overall. Um, just kind of like what that looks like. And A, if they kill themselves, and then B, is it actually clearing way for some other tour to be a competitor instead of this tour being the competitor? What was the other one that killed himself off already? There was another competitor that never got off the ground. I don't really know what yeah. happened to those guys. I'd have to read into it. But yeah. The I mean, one that wanted to do the league or whatever it was, whether you like drafted the players or whatever it was. Yeah, if this is success from an entertainment standpoint, it absolutely paves the way. Um, just the, the first version was a murderous regime and they picked Greg Norman to deliver when it mattered. And so I do think like that that this will open the door for that, particularly if you can pay and guarantee these guys money. Because you don't have to pay Dustin Johnson $150 million. These young superstars that aren't established enough on tour yet, because it is still so hard. I don't think people understand to get established on tour to get starts and make that kind of money. If you can get the kid at 22 and guarantee him a fraction of what they're paying Dustin Johnson and say, Hey, this is guaranteed for the year. Yeah. I, I think this does open the door for that. Yeah. So, all right, we will see when Ole Miss decides to play baseball or when they are allowed to play baseball with the weather being what it is again, a tropical depression, uh, possibly going in over South beach this weekend over the South Florida area coming from uh, Cuba. So by the time you listen to this, maybe they're on the field. Maybe there's still a day or two away, but nonetheless, we'll have reactions and uh, coverage of that throughout the weekend and into next week with uh, whatever is coming up beyond that. I think Brian has a wedding this weekend, but he'll be checking in around that. Uh, he's not his own, but a, a, a wedding he is attending at some point this weekend. So uh, plenty of stuff, rebelgrove.com on the podcast network as well, and we will talk to you again very soon. Thanks to uh, Brian and uh, Chase for their time. That does it for this edition of Hand Raise, guys. We'll put this up in podcast form as the uh, Friday Oxford Exxon podcast here uh, as soon as we can. Again, our thanks to the people at Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating, for making uh, this show possible. Like Chase just said, we'll have coverage throughout the weekend, baseball, recruiting, whatnot, and uh, be back with you on Monday for another edition of the Oxford Exxon podcast. Until then, take care.